Grab a cold beverage, listeners. You're going to get thirsty when you listen to this episode. Yes. Remember when we visited Tucson, Arizona back in the day, and they told us, even if we didn't think we were thirsty, to always carry a bottle of water because you don't really sweat in the desert, just it dries. And then the next thing you know, it's like, I need a drink. Yeah. It's a hot, dry climate. Ugh. Yeah, they also advised that when I visited Colorado with the garden bloggers, they, I mean, they would just overload us with water because you don't know you're thirsty till it's too late. Yes. So today I am drinking tea. It's iced tea. Me too. But after our tea episode, speaking of drinks, one of our listeners, Jenna in Georgia, wrote and said her favorite tea was from a family-owned business in Alabama called Piper and Leaf. Yes, I saw that. So my order should arrive today. <laughs> <laughs> what did you buy? Um, I bought, I'll call them dessert teas. Um, well, there's chocolate tea, which has some chocolate in it, apparently. Old-fashioned yeah. birthday cake. And then the other one, not really a dessert tea, but healing honeysuckle, which just sounded smooth. Ooh, you're making me hungry. We better get on with the episode. All right, I'll get us started. Welcome to the Garden Angelus, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. I'm Carol Michael from Indianapolis, Indiana, where I have a suburban garden measured in square feet. It's about a third of an acre. And I'm Dean Ash from Guthrie, Oklahoma, where I garden on several acres out in the country. We call ourselves Garden Angelus because we are evangelists for gardening. We love gardening and we want others to love it too. Yes, we do. And we aren't afraid to spill the beans and tell all of our gardening secrets, the good, the bad, and often the ugly. But that's enough of who, what, when, where. Let's move on to this week's episode. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Dee. You can tell that spring's getting closer because our little updates are starting to grow in length. Yours is really long this week. How about you tell us about it? Well, uh, on Tuesday of last week, they had hyacinths on vase at Aldi. So I bought three pink, blue, and white. They are all in full bloom out in the kitchen. They are wonderful. Um, We had some great weather on Wednesday, so I trimmed back the epimediums, some grasses, a few flower stalks on some hellebore or hookra. And then Thursday was rainy, which is fine because I went out to Brownsburg, which is not, it's not far, but it's not near either. Uh Um, Spoke to a group called the Friendly Garden Club. Mm -hmm. And for those people who have written me and said, could you come speak? And I've said, no, I'm not speaking in 2024, 2023. Um, This club arranged for me to speak like 15 months ago before I decided I was taking the year off. So they're a lovely group. Then Friday we had, we had cold with, and there were some snow flurries out there. So we had literally like spring, summerish, winter. We had every season almost. We did too. I'm tired of it. I'm ready for it to settle down, but I know it's going to be a few more weeks. Yes. And then I went to the garden center on Saturday and I deserve a pat on the back because I didn't buy any houseplants and I could have easily bought some houseplants. I'm impressed. But I did buy wheatgrass seeds and I'm my little egg people. I'm practicing sowing those. And so I sowed a few to see how long they're going to be to germinate. And then I sowed seeds for onions, lavender, Plus, from All American Solutions, all American selections, uh, I got a 
petunia. I think it's carmine something or other. I should have looked that up. And then I got the snapdragon and I started seeds from those. It's got some more microgreens started. And I might quit talking about those because people know just I'm sowing and eating them regularly. Anyway, Good big week, big week of gardening, sort of. The only person who ate any microgreens here was Masha. Masha. So I gave up unless I'm going to do them in the greenhouse. And right now in my garden, the greenhouse space is a premium. So we won't be doing microgreens out in the greenhouse right now. Instead, well, speaking of that, I, I want to move my microgreen set up into the kitchen somehow and put it in lights there because mm-hmm. I actually need the space for starting seeds in a couple of weeks. I understand that. So I realized yesterday that I hadn't planted my Snapdragon seeds, and we have the ones from the All-American Selections called Double Shot Orange Bicolor, and I have another variety from Select Seeds called Rocket Orchid, and I planted those. Those are the tiniest seeds I've ever dealt with. They are the tiniest, tiniest seeds. Tinier than poppy seeds, which is really tiny, something. tiny. And um, then I also got out some big seeds, nasturtiums, and it was Bloody Mary. And I planted those after I soaked, and I'm saying this so that people will know to do it. I soaked my recycled containers in a 10% bleach solution. I saw that on the Instagram. I saw you do that. So it's on my Instagram stories, you know, people get to them. And then maybe I'll make that a highlight, and then that way it'll stay on there. It's kind of important. And I'm soaking my sweet pea seeds, not sweet potted peas that you eat, sweet peas that you don't eat, that smell good. I'm soaking them right now, and I'm going to go plant them as soon as we're done. And then I also, it's that time of year where there's just not enough of me to go around, you know? That's right. Because I sprayed neem oil for a second time in the greenhouse. I am happy to report that the coleus I sprayed neem oil on it worked like a charm. Cool. You know, to kill the mealy bugs, it really worked. And then I sprayed it on the stupid citrus trees, which by the way, that orange tree that I want to get rid yeah. of, it burst into full bloom. Ha, 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 ha. I think it's on its last gasp and that's why it did it. It, it was like, sensed the me. negative vibes and it said to itself, I'm going to show that D. She can't throw me out while I'm in full bloom. I am going to bloom like nobody's business. And so my life depends on it. Yeah, it's still going. Um, and then wait a minute. When you say warmer, it's still going, you don't mean it's still going as in flowering. You mean it's still going out of your garden. I mean both. It's going. It's going out the door, and it is still in fl- flower. It is. It does smell good. I'll say that. But it's got bugs on the blossoms, and not good bugs. And it's it's gross. It needs to go. Um, <clears throat> and I realized I don't really eat oranges. So why do I have an orange tree? Because why not? Anyway, um, I also watered everyone this week. And I want to tell people I hand spray. Like this isn't a big sprayer in the greenhouse. I'm just hand spraying the few plants that are in bad shape. It's getting warmer and the greenhouse plants are starting to dry out more and dry out faster. And so did that and I repotted some things. I was very busy. See, I am I am exhausted just after our updates, we have, we have, we should pat ourselves on the back. We've got it going on. Yeah. We better move on to the quote. Life is defined by time and seasons. Summer brings sunshine, warm and flowering. Spring brings warmth and blossoms of flowers. 
Fall brings the falling of leaves and cool days. Winter brings cold, dry, harsh weather, and trees are without leaves. Layla Gifty Akita. Okay. And you and you like this one because sometimes a week is defined by seasons. Like this last week, I think we had a little spring, almost summer, winter, fall. We had it all. Yeah. It's going to be very warm here today. And then I think in two days, it's going to be really chilly again. So have you noticed? And that, I, I mean, this is an actual phenomenon from, you know, weather. When the weather is going to get bad, there's a surge of heat first. And there's a really warm day and then it goes down. I heard that from a meteorologist and I was like, yeah, that's true. Usually it is. And so today you can see out my window. It is sunny. And then tomorrow it's going to be rainy, but 68, which is very unusual for February. And then Thursday, we're back to kind of cold. So who knows? Yes. And all these weather extremes, it has been a really warm winter in Oklahoma this year other than these huge cold snaps we've gotten and um, the lavender, some of it isn't very happy. We'll see though. It was the newer lavender. It's always the newer plants or the really old plants that get clobbered by these extremes, but let's talk about something happy flowers. Yes. And lavender, lavender does like drier conditions. And the reason we told everybody get a drink of water is because our theme this week is about dry gardens. And so you might psychologically have to keep drinking water. No kidding. And I have a cold. So if I cough, everybody, sorry, just going to have to bear with it. All right. So what should you grow in dry spots in the garden? What do you think? I think, well, the first things that comes to mind are things like succulents, sedums. And I think about rock garden plants. Yep. That, um, And I joke because one of the slides that I show when I go out to speak and I was reminded of it because it popped up is I'll have seedlings show up in the patio, Uh like viola seedlings and petunias, and they're literally growing in sand in between the pavers. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we think plants need a lot of water and they do. You shouldn't put your petunias and violas in a container and never water them. But plants are, they're tough and they do, they adapt to dry climates. They do. And my garden paths make great seed beds. I mean, they really do. Which reminds us, and you're going to talk about Beth Chatto's garden in England. She's a very famous English gardener, gardener slash garden writer. She has passed away. Right. But she planted stuff without watering it. And if it survived, she was happy. If not, you moved on to the next plant. And a lot of her plantings were in gravel. And you saw this garden, did you not? I did. I saw this garden. Um, yeah. And the, the best part of the garden, I mean, it's a pretty big garden and they have a cafe. It's very nice. But um, the part of the garden that is the most famous is the gravel garden, which used to be her driveway. And so she decided that she was tired of watering. You and I read a book by her. And Christopher Lloyd, where they wrote letters back and forth to each other. And yes, yes. It was during that time that she started that gravel garden. The thing about Beth is that she changed how people gardened in England. Up until then, they were used to, well, the area that she lives in, which is East Anglia or lived in, is East Anglia. And East Anglia is drier than, say, other parts of England. Because people have this idea that England's all you know, rain, rain, rain. And that's not true. In East Anglia, it's not. So she planted 
all kinds of things. But I will say this, some of the stuff that she planted in the gravel garden, I couldn't get away with here because our sunlight is so intense. They they have very long days in the summer of sunlight and it's very dark in the winter because of where they are in the world, right? I mean, it does, the sun doesn't set till 11 p.m. midsummer. But, and the sun is not intense all day. That's right. Like it is that's in right. Oklahoma. So they have this beautiful, I mean, that's why their plants grow so beautifully tall is that they have beautiful sunlight that doesn't attack everything. Here we call it the death orb. So there's a big difference. I will say there are a lot of plants that we think wouldn't do well in a dry garden. And I'll tell you one, Phlox paniculata. You do have to water it here, but you don't have to water it as much as you think. It'll put up with a lot of abuse, especially the older varieties. I can't speak to the new cultivars. And then you brought up lavender. Lavender. And um, I have lavender growing in a corner of my vegetable garden and some in a few other spots, but the ones back by the vegetable garden they're by a big rock. They don't get a lot of extra attention or water. And they they grow amazingly well. And I do not know the varieties. I bought them from somebody who grew like every lavender variety that she could find up near Muncie, Indiana, which is north and east of me. And I bought them from her as little tiny plants. And she said, basically, the thing with lavender is you do not water it and you do not mulch it. Mm-mm. And it will thrive. You you have to think about the Mediterranean climate when you're growing that. Yes. And certain lavenders don't do well in Oklahoma mm-hmm. because it's so humid. And I would say that you planting them near your rocks, that gave them reflected sunlight too. And it also made it warmer there, which they like. Yeah. It, this is a big rock. I mean, I joke that it fell from outer space, but they literally dug it up when they were digging the foundation for the house and they kind of pushed it to the back. and. That's a whole nother story. But the other plant that does well with very little um, extra watering and just kind of comes up and does its thing is yarrow. Yeah, yarrow doesn't love it here. There's a native yarrow, the white one, you know, which is Achillea the right name for the botanical name? Yes. Yes. Okay. And then the white one grows in my upper pasture with no supplemental water at all. That's the one that comes here just naturally. If I if I leap into action, it's because Masha has decided to mess with my hyacinth faces that are on the table because you know because <laughs> the way she is. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, Yarrow's a great plant. I'm trying to think of some other ones that are really good too. I bet our listeners can come up with some. For yeah, uh, the other thing too, and I I have a lot of sedum that just um, a couple of kind. So I would just call the ground cover sedums. One of them I think is called blue spruce or spruce. And that's got a grayish cast to the, to the, I call them leaves. They're, you know, fleshy things. That stuff comes up everywhere. And then I just, just pull it out where I don't want it, but it's, it's very pretty. It has yellow flowers and Dia's just gotten up to go get that cat away from the vases. Unceremoniously tossed her to the ground. Well, yeah, she had she had to go because those are three of my favorite vases and she cannot break them, um, which she did break one once. So we aren't going to go into the other that. thing I want to talk about. And I'll tie this when you when you look at um, woodland wildflowers and some of the bulbs that we grow, a lot of the bulbs that we grow are actually from Mediterranean climates. And so 
you don't want to have a lot of water in the summer because that'll rot those bulbs out. They, And if you think about woodland flowers, during the summer, they don't get as much rain down at their roots because they're in the middle of the woods, which a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of tree roots and things that are sucking them dry. Well, and also the, the water leaves out. deflect the rain. So they just don't yeah. get much. They do get all of that great, you know, wonderful soil from all the leaves that fall in the winter, but they don't get much in the summer. So something to think about when you plant bulbs too, is don't, don't overwater them in the summer. They hate it. Especially daffodils. I can think of a bunch of them. A lot of the hyacinths. I just posted another picture on Instagram of the crocuses in the lawn because why not? Um, But I tell people when I tell them how I did that, if you have an irrigation system and you're, you know, be like one of my neighbors that I'm not going to and just pump water on there to where you almost have a swamp in the summer so that your grass is green. That will kill off. I think that will rot out those bulbs. And so I don't supplement a water back in the backyard. It just, it just fine. It'll it does kill your fine. trees too. That's one of the biggest problems they've found with trees in lawns and shade lawns, because those are what get watered in Oklahoma the most is fescue. If you water too much, you can damage your trees. So too much water is a bad thing. And there's a, there's a point to all this talk about dry gardens. But do the next quote, and let's talk about vegetables. It's so dry, the trees are bribing the dogs. Author, Charles Martin. (laughs) That's hilarious. That is hilarious. (laughs) It's that dry here. You know, it it can. And I don't want to speak to the, I mean, I'm going to sound like an old lady gardener. Well, I remember the drought of 12. It was terrible. I think I was there in the drought of 12. Was that when you they were did here in writers? The, yeah. We they, had the pre-drought in 11 and then oh. the full drought in 12. So it was pretty dry. 2011 here was a nightmare, but then 2012 was okay. I think all the water went down below you guys. But yes, I yes. remember y'all's gardens in 2012. It wasn't your best year. No. Uh, last year wasn't our best year because it got hot and dry here then too. So you have on here under vegetables, why D uses drip irrigation in her garden and why they probably do in Arizona. Well, yeah, and, I mean, well, the thing is when everything you read about vegetable gardening and everything I write, it's like, how much water did tomatoes need? About an inch a week. How right. much, you know, so about an inch a week. And so if you're gardening in Oklahoma, Arizona, New Mexico, parts of Southern California, you you are not getting an inch of water a week. So you have to figure out if you're going to grow vegetables, how to supplement. And you did that. Right. And I use drip because it's, it's more efficient. It just is. And then I don't have to worry about watering it. And also that you'll have less foliar trouble, foliar diseases, leaf, leaf diseases. If you use drip irrigation, because you aren't splashing water and soil on the leaves all the time. And you know, there's a lot of reasons. So I wrote a article for Oklahoma Living called Hard to Garden. And actually, the Horticulture Society has asked me to come speak on it, which I think is funny because I'm not sure how to speak on that, but I'll figure it out. Um, it is hard to garden here. And then one of our listeners, who's a friend of ours, wrote and said, it's hard to grow- garden everywhere, Dee. And I said, mm, no, I don't think everybody feels that way. I think there are some places that are a little easier. I think... For the most part, Indiana is easier than Oklahoma because uh, we do tend to get rain 
in a normal summer, we do tend to get rain about when we need it. Now, we had a really dry fall, and I don't remember a fall quite as dry as the one that we had. And that kind of caught people off guard because round about Labor Day, people are like shutting it down and nobody thinks of hauling their sprinklers out and watering and stuff. But sometimes you do have to in the fall. But I don't think Indiana's all that hard, but I'm used to it. Um, and I also think Texas is hard. I suspect Kansas is hard. I think you guys don't have as many bugs as we do down here. I Lots yeah. of bugs. Oh, gosh, so many bugs. But you know what? It, it, it is, you have to learn for your particular climate. And then, um, okay, so you have in here about how we, okay. So the whole full sun tag thing, we talk about this a lot in Oklahoma. If it says that it needs partial sun, you're going to plant it in the shade here because it's hot and dry. If it says full sun, it depends on the plant. And you need to study the plants when you're in the store and not really trust those tags because a lot of what is, you know, grown might have been tested, say, in Minnesota. You know, Bailey Nurseries is up there. They do a lot of the hydrangeas for the United States and they test them up there. Now, they're grown in more local places, like some of ours are grown up by Tahlequah, which is sort of up by Tulsa. Um, but here's the thing. That's very different than Altus, Oklahoma. And Southern Indiana is very different than Northern Indiana, right? Yeah, they're about a zone different. And the thing I would say is it, the sweet spot for many of these things that call for full sun in climates like yours mm-hmm. is if you can give them morning sun and filtered shade in the afternoon, that's kind of the sweet spot because you're just protecting them from the, as you say, what do you call that? The fiery orb? The death orb. The death orb. I couldn't think. Um, you're protecting them from afternoon sunlight. So I always tell people when I go to garden coach, I say, okay, the best side of your house is the east side. That's your morning sun side. And so yep. you plant all of the finicky stuff there. And then you can plant other stuff in other parts. And then I help them work on those. So it depends on the plant. I mean, if it's a salvia, you're welcome to plant it on the West side or the South side, as long as you've got water, but you know, certain plants like roses, hydrangeas, et cetera, et cetera. You want to plant those on the East side and certain hydrangeas on the North side, but I digress. Yeah. Yeah. You do digress. Cause we're sp- t- talking about vegetable gardens. Oh, so if, if well, you could put a vegetable garden on the East side of your house, where it would get some afternoon shade when you're in a very hot location. Now mine's out in the back in the middle of the back, not the middle of the backyard, but the back third of the backyard and it gets full sun pretty much all day. But I've noticed that, you know, there's a fence around it. So it does get a little bit of a shade at times. Mine's in um, full sun. I'm not going to lie. I might, my vegetable gardens in full sun, both of them, the, one, the pots that go down the middle of the driveway are in full sun. And the one, uh, there's one bed that gets a little bit of shade because here's the thing, they're annuals, most of those vegetables, and I'm growing stuff like peppers and um, gosh, garlic will be finishing up when it gets hot. I mean, it's not hot here all the time, but we're going to talk about Arizona in a minute. And that's a whole different thing. So my vegetables are grown in full sun, tomatoes, peppers, things like that, eggplant, all of that can handle full sun as long as it has water. As long as it has water. Now, we should tell our listeners, and, and you've talked before, that setting up drip irrigation, there is a investment of money up front because you have to buy all the components. Sure. And a lot of times you have to hire someone to do it for you if it's yeah. a big garden. 
you can't set it and leave it because you have to check your emitters to make sure that they're not clogged up. You got to make sure your timers are working properly. And because several times last summer, I'll remind you, you would say this, the stupid timer stopped working and something didn't get watered while you were gone or. Yeah, I had a bad timer. And that's the thing about those timers. Even though you bring them in in the winter, I mean, they're just not made that well. They're made in my favorite country. And so planned obsolescence, we call it. Yes, it's planned obsolescence. And so I had a timer that was, uh, it was older than three seasons and it had to be replaced. And get this, I replaced it with another timer and that timer was messed up too. And that was a brand new one. So you need to check them. And um, in the spring, you have to check the emitters because they're usually full of ants, honestly, searching for water. Well, and then we talked about this before. If you have an irrigation system in Indiana, in the fall, you must have it blown out so that it doesn't freeze and crack and ruin. And then in the summer or the spring, they have to come back and turn and it open on it up. And blow it out. Yeah. And then they have to do what's called a backflow test. Yeah. To make sure you're not backflowing into the city's water supply. And they they have to do a backflow test and then register that with the city of Indianapolis, in my case. And you get a little tag that hangs on your thingy that says it's been tested. I think they do that here too. I know everybody has backflow regulators on there. I have it on my system too. And I have three different systems. And this year I'm replacing my soaker hoses in the cut flower garden. We've already pulled them and we're going to replace them with Netafim tubing. So, you know, it's it is it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter how you set things up in terms of you're going to have to do some maintenance. It just is what it is. And also, did I tell you that one of mine froze? One of my lines froze for the first time. Yes, you did tell me that. Yeah. So we had to have it tunneled under the driveway because, of course, that's where it broke was under the driveway. Of course. And so they tunneled under the driveway. It was kind of an expensive fix. So nothing is cheap, as it were. So let's do the next quote and then move on to the bookshelf. I'm kind of excited about it. I am really excited about it. The cactus thrives in the desert while the fern thrives in the wetland. The fool will try to plant them in the same flower box. Vera Nazarian. How many times have you seen that done like on Pinterest where they show like succulents and ferns and all this stuff in one flower box? That's why I thought that was such a great quote because it's true. It is. It's crazy what people try to do. So on the bookshelf this week, we have dry climate gardening Growing Beautiful Sustainable Gardens in Low Water Conditions by Noelle Johnson, who is a friend of ours. She lives in the Phoenix area. Yes, we love Noelle. So I sent an email to Noelle and said, hey, Noelle, we're going to talk about your book. And we told the the publisher, we said, uh, neither one of us gardens in a dry climate. And they said, would you please talk about the book anyway? Because uh, they thought there would be a few listeners out there in Texas and places. Yeah, we do have listeners in Texas, so this would definitely apply to them. And in the book, it's very interesting. I'll have to turn to this page. She has a page where she she shows a map of the world and where dry climate gardening is. And so I was really amazed because I should have the garden. I should have that page mark instead of thumbing through and making these weird noises. I don't think you're making any weird noises. Okay. So it's on page 14 and 15. So um, I'd say a third of the United States, maybe a fourth of the United States down in New Mexico, definitely, you know, 
uh, Arizona, New Mexico, parts of Texas, up into Utah. Uh, South America, you think is the, you know, the Amazon, but there's parts of Brazil that are marked as dry climate. And um, over on the West Coast, dry climate, tons of places in Africa. Southern Europe is semi-arid, she says, you know, and Australia obviously has a lot of dry climate, but it's just amazing when you look at the map, how much dry climate gardening there is in the world. There's a lot of it. So I said, Noel, I have some questions for you. Yeah, because she's an expert. <laughs> so she wrote here, I printed off the answers, but I don't know the questions anymore because I only printed her answers. Oh, well, I'll help you. I'll help you with the questions. You said that you see that she grew up in Southern California. And so you asked about. Oh, I do have the questions here. You do have them? Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. I just I can see I said, them right here. What is the best thing about dry climate gardening? And she said, it's the ability to explore a plant palette of plants that are slightly different than those commonly grown in more temperate region. Cacti and other succulents have with their unique shapes, along with plants with varying shades of green tinged with gray. And the fact that they have fewer insect pests due to our arid climate. Yes, they don't have the issue with insects that I do. Which, But they have yay. scorpions. They have scorpions. Yes, they do have scorpions, but that's a, you know, that's just part of it. They're used to scorpions and snakes and things. Yeah, because remember when we were in Tucson, they said, shake your shoes out in the morning to make sure a scorpion didn't crawl into it. Okay, so I'm going to make a confession in Oklahoma in the country. We do that anyway, because we get scorpions too. Oh, ooh, okay. <laughs> My next question is, okay, tell the truth. Do you ever envy gardeners who have the traditional four seasons, like moi, when you see all those pictures of snowdrops, like mine, and crocuses, like mine, in bloom every spring on Instagram? And she says, no, she says she, she doesn't, she has a garden filled with blooming plants throughout the entire year. Okay. That's just braggity brag, brag, brag. I thought that was awesome because I thought it was the perfect answer because she, they have very good winters. Yes. They have what, uh, they have two quote unquote spring seasons. The first spring in March, April, and the second one occurs, uh, after the hot summers are over they rejoice because the heat is abating plants put on a new burst of bloom and people get busy in the garden again so then i wrote you know flattery 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 and i think this part is true i wrote we think your book should be given to everyone who moves from the midwest or any place that isn't a dry climate garden if they move to arizona they should hand them the book at the state line and i asked her what's the first thing you do for when you people call you for advice because she is the Arizona plant lady. And so she, she has classes online. She does garden consulting. So people do call her and she says, the first thing she tells them is that the dry climate garden is not just cacti and rocks. She says, ditch their hometown plants, dive into the wonderful possibilities that exist in a dry climate filled with draw drought tolerant plants, many of which have lush green foliage and a very long bloom season. And so I remember that when we were in Tucson, um, lush green foliage isn't the first thing I thought of when I thought of Tucson, but someone pointed out to me that many of the leaves are tiny and narrow and grayish in color. And that is because that helps them preserve moisture. Anyway, so one other thing I want to say, 
I says, what else do you want to say about your book? And then I had a bonus question. She says, I hope that people come away with the reality of what dry climate gardening is. Gardens filled with true beauty that don't need a lot of water. Well, they are beautiful. We've been to Tucson and we've been to Salt Lake City. and They are very beautiful. Now, the interesting thing in Salt Lake City is um, Cynthia B. Nelson was working with their, I forget the name of the water organization, to convince people to stop planting the green lawns and irrigating and so much water was going into irrigation and just really helping people understand there are other ways to garden other than, you know, the green lawns of new England and Indiana and um, having great success with people that were having beautiful gardens that were more uh, adapted to their climate. And in fact, do you remember we went downtown Salt Lake City and we were at the Mormon Temple Gardens and it was all exactly what you would expect to see in New England or yeah, it was weird. Indiana, <laughs> grasses and everything. Well, they were shutting it down that winter and they had a four-year renovation plan and they were going to completely change it over to be adapted to that exact climate. And so they would, you know, would greatly reduce the amount of water that they were pumping into the thing. And so that that would be interesting. So that was in 2019, 2023. So I wonder if online you can start to see pictures of how they changed that garden. I bet you can after all of that. So then I asked Noel on a follow up question. I said, do you have a signature plant? Like for me, violas is a signature plant right now. For you, it's, it's, I don't know, it was daylilies at one time. It's probably not now, but. Um, it changes in my world. Her signature plant right now, and it probably changes, is what's called the firecracker penstemon, which is penstemon etonii. And she says it starts blooming right around January and by mid-May it's done, but all through January to May, the hummingbirds all o- are all over it. And it tolerates both heat and cold, has beautiful red flowers. And I looked it up. She sent us a picture and it was beautiful. Yeah. Well, I looked it up to see, could I grow that in my garden? Can you? Well, it's one of those things. It is native to the Western United States, which is a big bonus. Mm-hmm. And it says it's hardy to zones four through eight, tolerates low water, um, good for naturalizing in harsh conditions. So- I I think it would be unhappy here. It would grow here. In fact, some people who have um, xeriscape type gardens grow it here. I mean, we should describe xeriscape. Xeriscape. I said it wrong. Xeriscape. Yeah. Which is basically dry climate gardening, in my opinion. Yeah, it is. Um, a lot of people thought it was cacti, but it's not necessarily. So, Dee, we're forging ahead with your cold even. and uh, <laughs> Sorry. We go ahead with the next quote. Hey, we're doing good. Our listeners will be happy. They'll they'll be fine. I'll edit out your little coughs and things. I had to go outside for a little bit. So that's why you had to do that all by yourself. Um, a garden is a grand teacher. It teaches patience and careful watchfulness. It teaches industry and thrift. Above all, it teaches entire trust. Gertrude Jekyll. That, that is very interesting, Dee. It does teach. Mm-hmm. So we have two pieces of dirt. You found this first do- dirt, the Montezuma Orchard Project in yes. Montezuma County in Colorado. Go for it. 
so this couple, and I, I don't know if they're married. I, I don't know. They're partners. Um, <clears throat> a man and a woman met each other, and then they ended. They fought fires together throughout Colorado. That's how they met. And then they decided afterwards to start doing this orchard. Pro- they bought an orchard, and it's in Montezuma County. And I learned about this on Cultivating Place podcast. And it was just such a, I mean, if you're kind of a garden geek, it's a great episode because he was wonderful to listen to. And we're going to link to the project. And what they do is they get heirloom apples because the Montezuma County, because of where it's located, it's an arid garden area, but it's got some shelter because of the mountains. And so apples grow really well there. And they have a lot of unusual varieties. And he, they have, he and his wife or partner have started this whole project where they um, sell a few scions every year. And it, it was fascinating about so many things. And I learned a lot from it. Yeah. I'm looking at their website and they, um, they're in southwestern Colorado, which is why it's dry. Right. And it does remind me that Noel told me one time, Noel Johnson told me that. They grow all kinds of apples in Arizona because they don't have any of the pest problems. No, no fire blight, no apple scale, none of the pest problems. So they grow beautiful apples um, with some irrigation, I'm assuming. But Right. But I think they also do um, dry farming. Um, and so they get really concentrated sugars. So it was fascinating. And he he lists a bunch of apples for different things including um, ones to make cider and hard cider and other ones that you grow for other reasons and some for eating out of hand, some for keepers. Anyway, I thought he was fascinating. It was fun to listen to and um, their career fighting fires was cool too. Very nice. So our next piece of dirt is we want to introduce our listeners to the little Dibby and the little Dibby XL. We love which them. is these great tools, and it's our friends, Sean and Allison McManus of Spoken Garden, and I'm holding up the tool, but this is a great tool, little dibby. It's a little dibbler, and it's perfect for sowing seeds and then pricking out little seedlings. There's two sizes. I'm holding up extra large, and actually, I think I like the smaller one better. I have the smaller one here, but I have the extra large one too. Keep going. But these things, they 3D printed these, and what's nice is the one end is like a little spoon, and you can actually... If you have little tiny seeds, you can put them on the end and it acts as a a seed spoon. Yep. Or you can use it to prick out little seedlings and transplant them. That's what I used it for. The other end of the tool is like a a little dibbler and it's marked off so you can have, you know what, an eighth, a quarter, a half, a three quarters, one inch. The depth is so you can put it in the soil at the right depth and just make the little holes. And that is wonderful. And so they 3D print these, which is kind of very, very cool. Yes. And you'll want to hold on to the card because it tells you the measurements of your yes. Dibby. Um, they're fabulous little tools. And I like them because they're plastic. Now, they'll say on their website, this isn't something you're going to like plunge into hard ground or anything. It'll break it. because. But for sowing seedlings and everything that you would do with seedlings where the ground is all um, loosened up, these are perfect. Here's the other thing cool about these. They won the 2023 National Garden Bureau's Green Thumb Award for Innovative New Garden Tools. 
Yeah. And unlike some divers, uh, the little scoopy part, we should take a picture of these and have it on our newsletter so people will see what they are. But there's a little, that little scoop, it is, it's solid at the top of it. Yes. And sometimes with other things, it's not solid. And so dirt gets up in there and stuff. And this doesn't do that. And because it's plastic, it sheds the potting soil really fast. It's a great little tool. I'm very impressed. I am impressed too. Now, right now they are selling them on Etsy because they're 3D printing them. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody helps them get these manufactured faster, but they're 3D printing them each one. And so, like they said, there'll be a few little markings where it detaches from the the printer thing. So that is very cool. We're going to include a link to that and hope that people get their own little dibbies because we got these, they sent us samples. And I said, you know, they have, you can buy imperfects or perfects. I said, I don't care if it's perfect or imperfect, just send it along and you get to choose your own color. And I chose green and you chose blue. I did. I love mine. Anyway, that is the little Dibby by Spoken Garden, Sean and Allison McManus. And great job on something innovative in tools. I'm kind of jealous really that I didn't think of it, but I don't have a 3D printer. And we should also say that Sean and Allison, uh, they have a podcast, Spoken Garden, and they're also on Instagram. And And they they have a website too. And they have a book. And a book. We'll link to all that on the, probably in the newsletter. So anyway, so cool. I love this tool. And I don't say that very often. No. And, uh, you know, I'm a kind of a tool fanatic and I don't say that very often either, but these are, these are great. All right, we are ready for another quote. Plants like people have their preferences and don't like being thrust into the nearest available hole. Beth Chatow. So I don't have a rabbit hole this week. I've been sick all week, so I get a pass. Your turn. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm cataloging books. I'm almost done. I'm now to the point where I have to do the ones from the that don't have an ISBN. So each one has to be looked up. It's Right. It takes time. The cross-stitching is going well. I'm making what they call, you're kidding, so I have a lot of work in progress. Uh, Lost Ladies of Garden Writing. I found a few more when I was cataloging books. But what really I've been looking at too much is, do you know what a nemophilist is? I do not. So a nemophilist, and I, I misspelled that. Let me correct the spelling. It's one who is fond of the forest or forest scenery, a haunter of the woods. Do you have to haunt the woods to like them? No, I think maybe haunter in the sense of going to the woods. Often. Yeah, got it. Yes. So I've been looking at YouTubes and Instagrams of somebody who calls himself the urban nemophilist. And he creates these little terrarium scenes that look like, you know, you've plucked a little corner of the woods and stuck it in there with mosses and little ferns and plants. And they're very cool. And it's got me thinking that I need to make a little tiny terrarium or two, of course. Oh, I saw, I'm looking at his um, Instagram right now. So the funny thing was when I first started looking at it, so he, he has horticultural charcoal and I have some that's real granular, but he has some that are like little bricks, like an inch brick. And he, he puts those into because they help absorb like odors and things. Right. Well, he's picking one up and I thought, that's got little bugs on it. Does he know that has little bugs on it? 
And that is on purpose. They put little springtails, and I've seen somewhere they put little roly polies in the little terrarium because they help clean up a lot of the debris and keep the ecosystem going. Well, that makes sense because that's what those that's what roly polies do. Sow bugs. Yeah. So I'm I'm eyeing the moss outside and I'm thinking, where does one get springtails? I'm I mean, they're out there. They're tiny, tiny little insects. I know where I could get roly polies, but Anyway, and I I did, I have this one really weird houseplant called Syningia, and um, I bought it last spring. The thing is like almost died and come back, almost died and come back, and it's got a pretty big uh, root structure. I think it's almost like a tuber that it's growing out of. Had one leaf, and I thought, I'm just not keeping that moist enough. So I looked up, and it needs to be moist, and I have a little tiny glass container now, and I I potted it up as best I could with a little bit of charcoal and rocks. And so I have it growing in there. So I'm anxious to see if it just completely dies on me or actually grows well. And if it does, I might do something with mosses outside. I don't know. Anyway, they're fascinating. (laughs) Well, you did find it fall into a rabbit hole. It's a good thing. (laughs) I didn't have anything else going on. Why not? No, nothing at all. So speaking of nothing going on, how about garden commissions for next week, D? Oh, I'll be planting more seeds this week. I'm probably going to start my zinnias because I want to. I mean, it's it's a little early still, but I don't care. I'm going to start them, I think. And I need to buy some more potting soil. And I plan to work outside on Friday if it's not too cold. Um. I've got something going on the rest of this week, so I can't go out, which is a bummer because today is beautiful. So today, yesterday was beautiful here. Today is pretty nice, but it's only going to get in the low 40s or the high 40s, maybe. I'm going to tend some seeds that I've already sown, just make sure that they stay moist and everything. Um, I don't think there's a lot of great weather coming up. I've got rain coming in tomorrow, followed by colder temperatures. I do have to write an article on how to grow lavender for family handyman and shrubs for the sun. So I'll do that research. But I did have a question for you. I've got some verbena seeds from All America Selections and they're a perennial verbena, I'm pretty sure. Do you think I should go ahead and start those seeds now? Aren't they kind of slow? Aren't verbenas slow? They are. That, And I think what I'm going to do is I'll plant some inside and I think I'll winter sow some although it's getting late, but I'll throw some outside in a winter sow. Can... To winter sow. Um, yeah. Where you live. Although here we're getting, we're getting a little low. Um, what kind of verbena is it? It's is the it? one that she sent. And I, you know, it's we are lazy I podcasters. I did not look it up, but <laughs> I will put a link to whichever one it is. It's okay. one of those dwarfer ones. It's, but it's not a trailing type. No. Yeah, we mostly grow the trailing ones here. It's not, it's a perennial. And so now you're making me look it up real quick. It'll just take <laughs> a second here. Um if I can get to the All America Selections in a hurry, <clears throat> she needs to look up All American Selections verbena, and maybe it'll show up. Maybe it won't. Well, thank you for the tips on doing a search. I'm new to this computer stuff, and I did not know that. D. <laughs> I'm telling the other people, not you. <laughs> it's verbena bonariensis, and the variety is oh. vanity. Oh yeah, you can start that now. I wouldn't even worry about it. Seriously. I, I think I should start it. And I after I got done sowing seeds on Sunday, I thought, oh, I should have probably done that verbena. 
I'm going to do half winter sow and half inside. So I didn't know it was Brazilian verbena, which is a whole different thing. So that verbena, it likes heat. So just make sure you give it some heat. I put it on a heating pad. If oh, that sounds. One. I do. Yeah. That sounds like work to get that set up. But I guess I could. Oh my goodness, <laughs> you can do it. The nice thing is, is once it's up, it's pretty easy. I grew the verbena venariensis from uh, Nanandra last year out in the greenhouse. It did great. I think I might winter sow these. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, that is it for this week's episode, I think. You got anything else, Dee? I'm done. Thank you for listening to The Gardenangelist. I hope you've hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. We publish every week on Wednesdays at 12 a.m. Eastern Time. If you listen to Apple Podcasts, we'd love a five-star review that helps us get noticed by others. Could you also share our podcast with your friends? Word of mouth is still the best way to get the word out there. And be sure and check out our show notes for links for more information about today's topics, plus links to our own websites. And subscribe to our Substack newsletter, The Garden Angelus at substack.com, also linked to in our show notes. And if you want to help support us, use those affiliate links, or you can make a monthly subscription through Buzzsprout or a one-time donation through PayPal. If you buy something after clicking through on an affiliate link, we're in a small commission and it costs you nothing. It was lovely to chat with all of you over the garden gate this week. Bye until next week. Bye, everybody.